0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply.
1: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing
2: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, Fest, Angelina Jolie Firefighter Edition. It's Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. On today's show, Angelina Jolie stars in Those Who Wish Me Dead, a thriller about a remote Montana community beset by a pair of terrifying assassins and a wildfire. It's on HBO Max. And then we discuss a weird publishing phenomenon, the genre that overlaps literary criticism with self-help with Slate's own book and culture critic, Laura Miller. And finally, I have always said that there is a special connection between Julia's lips and God's ears, but no sooner had she said that the Marvel character Modok deserved his own show than he got one. We discussed this MCU mature audiences cartoon with Slate's Jonathan Fisher, tech editor for the magazine. Joining me today is Julia Turner, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, your lips, God's ears, right?
3: Uh, If only I had, if every endorsement that I... Uh, Utter became a new cultural product. I didn't know I had such power. I'm, and now that I've seen its results, uh, I'm not sure
2: how I want to use it. Yeah, separate. Uh,
0: Beware the monkey's paw. Many bad <laughs> shows will flow forth <laughs> from Julia's lips.
2: And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slade. Hey, Dana.
0: Hello, Stephen.
2: Those Who Wish Me Dead is the wildfire thriller up on HBO Max right now. It stars Angelina Jolie as Hannah A. Smoke jumper, she parachutes into infernos to fight the flames and rescue the stranded. Hannah, we quickly see, is a hard drinking, hard living one of the guys' gal, but she's guilt ridden for failing to rescue three children during the last big fire. Here, I must pause and say, uh, for a fairly terse, efficient 100-minute thriller, there are some entangled plot lines here. Let me do my best. The thriller plot centers on a forensic accountant who knows very bad secrets about some very sinister people. To escape the assassins now on his tail, he heads with his young son to the Montana town where Hannah jumps smoke. Okay, so now you've got a kid on the lam in the forests where Hannah fights fires. Well, why Why does the forensic accountant go out to Montana? It's because... His brother-in-law, who's a cop, runs a survivalist school there. He's also Hannah's ex-boyfriend. So just as a brief recap, we have Hannah the smoke jumper, a little boy on the lamb, two evil assassins, and a survivalist cop. And they're all converged on a Montana town that, spoiler alert, turns into a giant angry inferno. Okay, in the clip we're about to hear, uh, uh, Angelina Jolie, a.k.a. Hannah, encounters the little boy whose trust she must try to win very quickly in order to help save his life.
0: All right, listen, my name is Hannah. What's yours? Fuck you. Oh, nice. I'm a firefighter. I work with the Forest Service, and I can help you, all right? Talk to me, and I'm going to help you, OK? All right. Yeah. good luck. Good luck. Town is 12 miles that way over the Continental Divide. Have fun with that.
4: Wait! Yeah?
5: I have a radio in a tower over there. We can call the sheriff or- No, not the sheriff, the news. Can you call the news?
2: Dana, this movie is somehow—I found it at least both pretty short and efficient. It's about an hour and forty, and yet it also is kind of overstuffed and wild. We've got a lot of plot lines, and there's an attempt, as I read it, to jam some tenderness and humanity in with a lot of action, a lot of which is kind of violent. Would you? Uh, Would you make of this?
5: I
0: mean, I, I think I watched this movie primarily as, as a piece of camp already. Just the idea of Angelina Jolie, firefighter, you know, like that's that log line will already sell me, but it's also it's, it's going to sell me in a certain kind of movie. I'm not really expecting realistic grit and sort of the background of the lifestyle of what it is to be a firefighter in Montana when Angelina Jolie is starring in the thing. But even given that, I feel like this movie went way, way farther out on the limb of, um, you know, just just every cheesy thriller cliche from what seemed like maybe the 80s or 90s. There's something very throwbacky about this yes. movie to the extent that when you see a cell phone or some piece of modern technology and you're almost <laughs> surprised, you know, I mean, it, it really does feel like something from the era of, of Backdraft, although it's not even as serious a movie about firefighting as Backdraft was. Um, for me, it seemed like this movie threw all kinds of opportunities away to be a, a something better than it was. But the main opportunity that it missed, I thought, was sort of the movie we were promised in the first ten minutes or so, when as you say, we see Angelina hanging with the guys, you know, somehow in spite of the fact that she is unbelievably gorgeous at all times and perfectly made up, even when she's just been punched in the face. She is buddies with all these firefighter tough dudes. And there's even a moment where we get this sense that she's more of a risk taker than most of them, mm-hmm. right? That they're they're having this party and they're drinking, mm-hmm. and there's this moment that she basically um smoke jumps off somebody's truck she puts on a kind of parachute or i don't know what you'd call it like parasailing thingy and goes goes out joyriding and you know sort of jumps off this truck and it's because she gets in trouble for pulling this stunt right that she's this this rowdy firefighter that she gets assigned this supposedly very boring job watching this this uh, watchtower at the top of a forest basically a lifeguard for 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 firefighting right and uh because she's in that tower, she gets mixed up in this whole crime plot. But I wanted to know more about that that rogue smoke jumper that she was supposed to be at the beginning. And I thought it was gonna be this movie that sort of showed what it was like to be a woman with, you know, maybe these behavior problems or kind of, you know, emotional regulation difficulties in this extremely dangerous job. Instead we really barely ever see her doing her job. And what she's really mostly doing is is being on the run with this kid, trying to save him from these villains who we'll get into they're their own sort of hilarious thing, the world of the villains but we don't really get the the Angelina at work as a firefighter scenes that I went in there to see.
2: Yeah, given the extensive setup of that exactly it just kind of disappears from the movie. I mean, Julia, I got to say Angelina Jolie as a smoke jumper just screams a uh, good bad movie to me. What do you uh would you make of that?
3: <laughs> I I share your note that this movie felt like watching a movie from the 90s. Like there's something about the slow reawakening of the film pipeline where every object that comes down it, it's like, you know, when you're at the, um, at the carousel at the airport and a bunch of, when a bunch of bags are coming all at once, you don't really look at any of them. Cause you're like, yeah, there's bags coming off the carousel and then it kind of slows down and there's just like a few weird bags between planes it feels like we're at that phase of the movie release pipeline. So you really have a long time to look at that one rolling suitcase as it goes around and around the thing. <laughs> and you're just like, what is this object? What even are suitcases? Like, why did they put that lock on it? You know, like this, this movie is just like, they don't make movies like this anymore, really? And, you know, and I can't say that this movie makes a great case that they should. I mean, it's a star vehicle. It feels very 90s. Um, on the other hand, it's not good enough to make me lament that they're not making more of these. Like it's kind of hard to mourn the potential death of cinema if this is what we're losing. You know, <laughs> like it's not Twister. Like we we watch Twister as one of our comfort watches, and this movie has none of the, I don't know, humanism, bourgeois de vivre, fun. And I'll also say, I mean, Angelina Jolie is an amazingly charismatic specimen. I just, you know, you know how in the trailer for Tomb Raider, she just stood at the top of Angkor Wat and like sultrily breathed, and her kind of shoulders knocked back and her chest heaving was like the symbol of that paused video character. Like she just does that against a lot of backdrops here, uh, in a way that I never was like, oh wow, this smoke jumper is bonding with this kid in a really tough and improbable situation was just like Angelina Jolie is fighting a fire. Angelina Jolie <laughs> mm-hmm. is helping yeah. a kid. Angelina Jolie did get struck by lightning twice in the same twenty minutes of this movie. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we got to that. I love the double lightning strike. <laughs>
3: And you're like, well, of course she did. What, what lightning wouldn't want to strike Angelina Jolie of all, the, of all the specimens in the world? Like, I don't know. It's preposterous. On the other hand, it's brief and kind of fun. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, the, the, the writer-director of this film is Taylor Sheridan, who was the writer of Hell or High Water, a film that we all really liked and sort of was an effort, I think, at a modern Western Great. Mm-hmm. I love Taylor Highwater. High Water. Yeah, yep. really and, and Sicario,
0: yeah. he also wrote the script for, which is not a perfect movie, but definitely a very strong script.
3: Well, so mm-hmm. the, the general concept, let's take characters and f- have a fight between good versus evil in the face of an implacable American landscape. You know, we've seen Taylor Sheridan pull that off to better effect. Those characters had a uh, air of the mythic to them, but they didn't just seem flat preposterous as almost every character in this film does. Mm-hmm.
2: I share with both of you the note uh, that I wrote in my in my notebook while watching it. Why am I watching an Angelina Jolie movie from 1995? It is such a throwback. I mean, that's its charm. If you and I did find that kind of weirdly charming. I mean, th- this is a this is you know it, during the wide release era, you had a star, a star vehicle, a big MacGuffin, a sellable MacGuffin that fit very readily on a poster and a tagline, a huge ad campaign to back it up. Mostly on back in those days on TV a huge opening weekend in order to make your nut. Uh, And then it went down the memory hole and no one really cared, right? Who cared if it were filled with huge gaping plot holes? Well, the problem is we're now in a small, we're in post-COVID. We're generally in a small screen paywall era. And the plot holes, you know, if you can drive a fucking convoy through a plot hole, you're going to have a hard time not noticing it. And this movie is built entirely on a gigantic plot hole, which is this supposedly implacable, you you know, almost, you know, omnipotent evil conspiracy people have sent two uber assassins to clean up their mess. But they somehow didn't calculate the six hour drive between the two messes that they needed to clean up, and that the spectacular way that they clean up mess number one was gonna hit the news thereby giving a 6 hour head start to mess number 2 aka the forensic accountant and the boy and they try to plug that hole with some dialogue like literally someone must have just noticed like well why like why did we give them a 6 hour head start why didn't we just hire four guys instead of two <laughs> right like i mean the if you're if if you're that implacable and terrifying and powerful and whatever like you 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 can't afford f- right you, you can you afford
3: know, a simultaneous you, hit rather
2: yeah. than consecutive hits right consecutive <laughs> right exactly and you're like what like i mean you know it just is so nutty and um
3: yeah and one thing i was interested in in watching this was just a movie in which forest fires are a character, a setting, a scene, a villain, but obviously living out West, you know, I had to close my window yesterday because there was a small brush fire and the whole neighborhood it smelt like smoke. And I went to the air quality meter. That's a bookmarked website. I regularly checked to <laughs> when there are fires, which are just like a fact of life in California. Um, although not usually as early as we're experiencing them this year. Um But this movie is like not interested in that at all or the like the effect like that climate change driven fire prevalence is changing these communities, you know, both eliciting and enhancing their self-reliant survivalist sense. I have a friend who lives in Topanga where there um, was another fire a couple weeks ago and You know everybody who lives there. They have walkie-talkies. They're fireproofing their homes. Like the 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 intersection of climate change and the American self-reliance that that we're used to uh, understanding in these communities is really fascinating. And there's really interesting debates in those communities about whether you hunker down or move or adapt. Um, And yet, in addition to not being interested in the the camaraderie uh, and technique and prowess of the smoke jumping firefighters this movie's also not interested in what the prevalence of fire is doing mm-hmm. to these communities right. at all it's just presented as a, as a status quo and you know there are some scenes with storms and lightning and we do understand that lightning could be the origin of a forest fire but the fire backdrop that we experience in the movie has a <laughs> Not circuitously climate change man-made cause, but a direct man-made cause. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, um, and so even that kind of short circuits some of what's was interesting to me theoretically about a film that makes forest fires a, a kind of major setting and plot point.
0: It's almost shocking to me. That's another way in which it seemed like a throwback to the 80s or 90s in that climate change was not even given any lip service to. I mean, not even some, you know, <laughs> the throwaway line or some scene with a whiteboard where somebody shows that such fires are more common now than they were in previous years. The fire is just simply a neutral you know, forced to be fought, just like Aidan Gillen is.
2: Oh, man. All right. Well, I, I, I did, by, for the record, I did find this was a good, bad movie. I mean, good, bad movies are, it's like a very funny little sweet spot, but it, this one kind of hit it. You can you can really, I lar- kind
0: of agree. I think in the right mood, like get high with your friend and giggle at it. You sure. This is larf. that kind of movie.
2: You, you can larf your th- way through this one. No, no uh, or watch
3: What's- on a plane, watch on a plane watch on a plane plane
2: movie solid agree yep all right those who wish me dead uh we loved it it's on um hbo max uh check it out
1: apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what do you uh, what do you have?
0: Stephen, the only business this week is to let Slate Plus subscribers know that our bonus segment this week is going to be based on a listener question, a really good one. A listener named Ivana wrote in with a long and really well thought through question about how we process the culture that we need to process for this show and for the rest of our lives. I'll read a little bit of her mail. She says that we are her favorite podcast, which thank you very much, Ivana. And then she says, I feel like each week Julia Turner mentions a new book she's reading or has read, and I'm always astonished by how she finds the time to do so. I'm sure she just uses her time much more wisely than me and has laser focus. Ivana, I think the same thing about Julia all the time. But she goes on to say, Broadening it out to the more general question of what each Slatester's day or week looks like, each of us that is, and how they get so much reading, writing, watching and listening done. What's the structure of their days and weeks? What proportion of their days do they spend reading, writing, watching and listening to things that contribute to their general cultural knowledge and intellectual life? And do we use any particular tools or apps to help us schedule and organize our lives, wow, I wish, and our reading, etc.? But for today's segment, I think we're going to talk about that, just sort of how we sort out all the uh, cultural consumption that we have to do for work and that we want to do for pleasure and joy. So if you're a subscriber, you can look forward to that bonus segment. And if you're not, of course, you can always go to slate.com slash culture plus to sign up for a membership. It's only $1 for your first month for a trial. And I really think that you'll stick around after you start to hear some of the great bonus segments and lack of ads that you get with your Slate Plus membership. All right, back to the show, Steve.
2: It is a truth universally acknowledged that people want to feel smart and literary but they don't want to actually read literature to service the market for snob appeal among the lazy, there has arisen a whole genre of nonfiction books that employ, typically employ, pop neuroscience, aka phrenology, to tell us that literature like yoga or granola is good for us and that its many strange aims can be reduced to a form of therapeutic self help. The latest example of this uh, is Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. I mean, what a preposterous title. It's by Angus Fletcher, a professor of story science at Ohio State, speaking of preposterous titles. Literature says Fletcher is, quote, a narrative emotional technology that helped our ancestors cope with the psychological challenges posed by human biology. It was an invention for overcoming the doubt and the pain of just being us. To which Slate's Laura Miller has replied, poppycock. (laughs) <laughs> Laura, well, welcome back to the podcast. What a wonderful takedown you've written about not only Ang- Angus Fletcher and this, you know, just stupendously moronic book, but um but the whole genre. But let's start with the stupendously moronic book.
5: So, Wonderworks. Um I I have to confess just starting out that I was a little confused because there is a sort of venerable uh literary scholar named Angus Fletcher who wrote a significant book, scholarly book on allegory. And at first I thought it was that Angus Angus Fletcher who actually died a few years ago. Um, and I was really confused when I started reading this one because I was like, I don't think this Angus, this has got to be the wrong Angus Fletcher. Um, th- this guy works for something um, called Project Narrative at, um, at Ohio State. And he has allegedly taught Shakespeare at Stanford, but you know I doubt that he he was part of like the regular faculty teaching Shakespeare because he seems to have a very weak grasp or 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 at least is being very misleading about um, the plays the ones that he describes he describes with a lot of inaccuracy and um you know I I, I really kind of don't know how to describe this book. I would say like. Forty percent of the things that he says are just wrong, and then another <laughs> like like forty percent don't really make any sense. And then, like every once in a while, there will be an insight. But um, but it's kind of it was kind of shocking. And at one point, I sent an entire chapter to Isaac Butler, a uh, friend of the podcast, who uh, just I, the Hamlet chapter to him, just because like I was so. Flabbergasted by his characterization of that of the play Hamlet, and I just needed somebody else to confirm to me that it was completely outrageous.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and Laura, not to you know nitpick against Angus Fletcher because the book is so holistically bad, you don't really need to. But this is this this particular error that you allude to in your piece is astonishing because anybody. Any student of any level who's capable of reading through Hamlet cover to cover will pick up on the fact that Hamlet has a traveling troop of actors perform a play about murder in the presence of his uncle, who he believes correctly has murdered his Hamlet's father, in order to see the guilty overreaction of his uncle, right? And Fletcher apparently just completely misses that this is the point of that part of the play Hamlet.
5: Right. Yes. He wants to argue that there are certain literary techniques that Shakespeare uses that are designed to help people cope with their grief. And he comes up with these weird concepts like the sorrow resolver. You know, like he renames all of these sort of literary devices as inventions and then. They all have something that they do. There's the secret disclo- discloser, the sorrow resolver, the, the grief releaser. You know, they're all sort of tools f- to sort of achieve therapeutic emotional ends. And so he basically recasts the entire play as a sort of um, a device designed to help the audience get over their own personal losses.
0: <laughs> I think Hamlet should just have been called the sorrow resolver. That was a real mistake on Shakespeare's part.
5: It definitely is like the most extreme version of something that is really common in the way is that especially Americans talk about um, culture. Um, I read a really great history of children's book publishing in America many years ago Uh, by Leonard Marcus, and one of the things he talked about was how the Puritans were concerned about different kinds of lies and their level of sinfulness. And there were lies that were lies that you would tell just to gain one kind of advantage or another, but then there was something called sporting lies, which are lies that people just tell for the fun of it. And that's what fiction fell under. Like mm. if you had if you had a work of fiction that was not instructing people on some, you know, usually religious, you know, value or obedience to your parents or whatever, if it was just for fun, then it was a sporting lie. And it was of questionable value and possibly sinful. And I sort of feel like Americans have never really gotten past that, because often when people are talking about, um, you know, it's mostly for me, because I'm a book critic, it's mostly about books, but it's also probably true of other kinds of culture. They talk about what it teaches people, like it teaches you this, or it teaches you that, especially with children. Like, I always feel so terrible for children, because everyone's always in a pedagogical relationship to them. (laughs) They they just don't get to have fun. They have to be constantly being instructed at all Mm -hmm. times. One one question I have for you about this book, Laura, and I would it's I
3: would always recommend your pieces to our listeners, but it's really fun to see you in um, decimation mode. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's, a it's fun to do it once in a while. Yeah, I also read um, an excerpt of the book that was printed in the Smithsonian, and I would commend you for even getting through it. It 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 it. Um, in addition to trying to turn literature into self help, I also found myself responding to the unnecessary rebranding of known literary devices. Like he, <laughs> yeah. he, he mentions Oedipus uh, and talks about the Hurt Delay, which he describes as a literary invention that Aristotle unearthed. I don't recall Aristotle's Hurt Delay as the prequel to The Hurt Locker, but correct me if I'm wrong there.
0: <laughs> but
3: I I was just like, I'm pretty sure I learned about Oedipus in school as an example of dramatic irony. Like, there's there are existing terms for the, the narrative devices that that <laughs> that, um, that that he's talking about here. Like, I don't know that he's actually unearthing new ones. He's just coming up with worse names for a bunch of them. Um, <laughs> one question I have for you though is: Does this book have any traction? I mean, you you wrote the satisfying evisceration of it. Uh, there's a slightly more generous, but but still pretty skeptical. New York Times piece on it. Um, Does this book have a lot of heat behind it? Like, it seems like the kind of book that might, but I can't tell if it's got any cultural purchase yet.
5: It seems to really have wowed some people. I would say people who are not very, who are not literary people, who are not, um, who don't know much about literary history, who don't really know these original texts very well, who probably haven't taken classes in them, and it's written in a sort of floridly colorful style with a lot of kind of made-up stuff presented as a um as, it might, as if it might be a historical reality. Oh, yes. And with sh-
3: Aristotle scribbling by the sesame lamp, the amber, the yes. amber light of the sesame lamp.
5: <laughs> yes. It's very... It's when he came very, up with his invention. <laughs> yes. It's very sort of... Um, it, it, he's obviously struggling really hard to keep... Things interesting for people who who don't find, you know, who are not used to thinking maybe a, a little bit more in a, a little bit more of a metal way about um, why literary works are, are great or why the people who wrote them are interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to tell because my impression of this project narrative um, operation is that one of the things that they do and that probably they make decent money on is script consultation. And so I can imagine that there are and and I and whenever you have like sort of script, people who are sort of uh, story scientists, often they um, are consultants, To advertisers, in fact, I just today got an email about some other book by a guy who used to be a journalist who now teaches a class at Columbia on storytelling for business people. So it's by, you know, how to tell a story about your product. Um, It it sort of escaped the bounds of literary criticism and become this, um, the idea of that there's a sort of science to storytelling. Mm. It's become a sort of um, sellable expertise. And so I think... That um, that this this guy that's one of the you know one of the things they do one of the ways that they you know make money with this with this organization it doesn't seem like they do any actual research at all because everything that he does present as having some kind of um, I don't know you know that has been studied in some kind of quantitative way is is somebody else's research. I mean, there's a lot of sort of garbled, potted neuroscience in this. Um, it, it, one of the things that this approach does, you know, 1st he you'll say, you know, like your amygdala or this part of your brain or that part of your brain is in charge of, you know, threat assessment or forming connections or whatever. And then this technique activates this part of the brain, but then it does this. And, you know, it's, it's all about how, you uh, You know, these literary techniques, you know, their effect on your brain. And one of the things that it does is it takes literary works out of their historical and cultural context because we all have brains that work more or less the same way. And so it creates a kind of fake idea of this universal storytelling structure or Mm -hmm. technique, technology, you know. Um, And um, I think that that's probably useful if you're. Trying to sell script doctoring to people who yes. want to make movies that sell internationally, but it also is something that is really kind of popular in the high technology world. Like they, they, there's a lot of this sort of pseudo or kind of what, like um, I don't even semi historical summarizing that pretends to sort of universalize everything that people do so that you sort of erase the the actual cultural context of anything and the way that cultural context shapes people.
2: Right. And and in addition Laura it erases what would what one would think is the absolutely distinctive thing about a literary work, which is its uniqueness and originality, right? I mean the the point of Shakespeare is that he's unlike any other writer who ever lived and that's true of Dickens and Austin and Wolfe and uh, Adrian Rich and go down the line right I mean it's 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 there's no substitution effect at all from James Baldwin to another thinker he is that human being who lived at exactly that time addressing exactly the issues of that culture in exactly precisely that rhetorically magnificent way to go to leap from there to evolutionary psychology in search of universals that can then be applied reversing the chain to specific works of you know narrative manipulation like selling a product or or making a script popular both in china and you know brooklyn is just is just nuts <laughs>
0: I mean, if this book were to take off and get traction and actually become a bestseller and you mentioned um, How Proust Can Change Your Life, Laura, the Alain de Botton book that did become a bestseller that is nowhere near this crass, but if this thing did become a bestseller on those lines, it would be a truly sinister <laughs> development. Um, I found the preparation for this segment incredibly amusing as someone who does care about and love literature, and I actually recommend that people read not just Laura's hilarious and brilliant takedown of the book, but this excerpt from Wonderworks Works that, that we read that was in this <laughs> missonian that julia referenced that you know essentially breaks down some of these these weird renamed categories literary inventions because if i were putting together a syllabus right now for a sort of how to read literature class for undergraduates or young graduate students i might teach this book just Mm -hmm. as a as a as an anti-case right i mean a way it's such an obvious um anti-literary and anti-intellectual document that it would be it would be really interesting to teach it in combination with some of these texts that he mentions and just let the students see for themselves, you know, where not just the plot of Hamlet has gotten wrong, but, you know, all of medieval history is completely erased <laughs> as Aristotle is sort of immediately updated from his his papyrus lamp days to the 20th century there's no attention whatsoever that I can see that he gives to translation or problems of translation or what it might mean to read a text that is thousands of years old and was writ- is written in a language that's no longer spoken by anyone alive. Um, just in general, the the absolute transparent wrongheadedness of almost every single thing this guy says <laughs> seems like it could be useful in a kind of um, pedagogical context of some kind. but. Yeah. I mean, this book seems like beyond dumb. It seems actually dangerously dumb if someone who did not go in with some sort of sense of of what art and literature meant in their own humanity and was sort of trying to figure out, you know, if you were, a, a, don't know, a data-style robot who was trying to (laughs) become human, this would be the wrong book to read in order to understand what literature is and means and does for humanity.
2: Let me quickly just jump in very quickly and say, Dana, I think it's dangerous because humanistic learning in the university is so on the decline and there's this desperate attempt to attach to something more solid uh, you know, more empirical, more trendy, and more fundable, more more available to outside sources of funding, right? Which is how the sciences in the university now uh, operate, with an enormous amount of grant writing uh, and partnering with private industry. And the humanities are 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 slowly being left out in the cold. They did themselves no favor by turning toward uh, literary theory and 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 postmodernism in the '80s. Um, because when those trends petered out, they were left with very little to fall back on by way of justifying themselves to non-initiates. And um, that's I think where the, the danger oddly enough is not the bestseller list is going to be filled with this BS forever. I mean it's always it's just a genre that's going to repeat and repeat and repeat and you have to live with it. But within the university, it's the insecure footing of the humanities and this desperate, play for relevance in the direction of Darwinian neuroscience that I find really genuinely sinister because it, it really obliterates what the essence of humanistic learning is or should be all right well Laura uh, this was uh it's always a delight <laughs> but I mean this just this, this I love scathing Laura Miller is just it's, it's not the best Laura Miller but it's just it's it's a welcome. Uh, side anyway um, Laura uh, you
0: have activated our pleasure receptors thank you for (laughs) releasing dopamine in our frontal cortex yes the
3: parts of my brain that light up when Laura brings out the hatchet um, I really they should put me in an MRI to read this review yeah exactly and then trace
2: that back to the primordial slime enough with literature of self-improvement is Laura Miller's amazing piece on Slate go check it out Laura come back soon please
5: I would love to thanks
1: Ability to receive a quote depends on membership eligibility. Membership eligibility and product restrictions apply and are subject to change. USAA means United Services Automobile Association and its affiliates, San Antonio, Texas.
2: Marvel's MODOK is a cartoon with a mature audience warning appended to it. It's now up on Hulu. Okay, so bear with me as i understand it and maybe i don't you have two genres you have the animated family sitcom as pioneered by the simpsons of course and then expanded upon by south park and family guy and you have the mcu the marvel cinematic universe and now we have the first true hybrid of the two marvel's modok is evil but he's cartoon evil his name stands for mental organism designed only for killing Modoc. He has a weird shape, Modoc does. He's a giant face crammed into a cube. With funny little limbs sticking out, he levitates in a floating chair and has a zapper thingy embedded in his forehead. He's at once an evil supervillain bent on unleashing nihilistic havoc uh, the globe over, and a hapless dad unable to win the respect of his family. I, I relate to this guy. Plus, here he's voiced by the ever-delightful Patton Oswald, who also co-created the show. I think I have to leave my explanation there. We're going to get a better one from our guest, but first let's listen to a clip.
4: Behold, M.O.D.O.K.'s Republic of Modoc! working title, because it's working so well.
2: Uh. It
4: will be the capital city of my utopia, after I conquer the world. Tomorrow, the sun will rise behind these broken vertical blinds, and a new day will dawn. I shall reclaim aim. I shall reclaim my family. I shall reclaim my destiny. How about you reclaim my foot up your asshole? How dare you overhear me? identify yourself coward i'm tony in 14. i i'm gonna come over there and curb stomp you you shithead where are you i'm the old polish woman in 3b tough guy yes tomorrow marks the birth of modoc 2.0 <laughs> all
2: right the birth of modoc 2.0 i'm still trying to get my head around modoc 1.0 and to help me do that we're joined by jonathan fisher who is the tech editor for slate john welcome to the show
4: hey happy to be here
2: Yeah, great to have you. I somehow, it it totally defies explanation, never knew MODOK existed, but he was created by none other than the absolutely legendary Jack Kirby, the illustrator, and in some ways, I think the creative genius, along with Stan Lee behind uh, Marvel Comics, which means he's absolutely canon, right?
4: I guess, yeah, you could call him one of the Lee Kirby classic Silver Age villains of Marvel. Um, He appears first in 1967 in a Tales of Suspense ninety three and ninety four, um, and he's an incredible looking character. He you know he's a, he's a giant head with tiny limbs in a big floating robotic chair, um, and he appears as a villain to Captain America um, in a way that's like almost totally committed. Uh, he just um, there's this inc- incredible splash page where um, they've been talking about MODOK for an issue, and then suddenly there he is in all of his large headed grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. But let explain to me. Is
2: he always so now he's this sort of super cheeky kind of self-undercutting, not really all that super villain, in order to play into this other genre, this kind of family, adult family cartoon. Uh was he always that way when he uh, took on Captain America?
4: Definitely not. I think the the version that you see um in 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 this new cartoon is um it's not the first version of the character where he's where where it's funny and he's very pathetic. That that's happened a few times. Although it's the first one where they've expanded, uh, you know, him into the this family man. You know, usually he's more of like um, he's 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 more of like an extra cartoonish uh, villain who sort of like pops in, like a like a demented Kool Aid man, and you know says something you know very mustache twirling and evil like I'm gonna crush you or or, or something like that. <laughs> You know, I would say that if you read those original Lee Kirby stories, the character really actually does have, um, you know, some pathos and you get a sense of, um, you, you sort of see him as both like an, op- you know, the opposite of Captain America, who he's usually the foil to, you know, instead of uh, muscle and um, a- and this incredible physique, he has this massive head, he's entirely evil, he sort of is always undermined by, by his ego and ambition
2: all right, well, now we have this extremely joke uh cartoon sitcom. What do you make of it?
4: Over the course of it, it really worked for me. Um, I thought it was, like, a bit much at first. Um, you know, I think it's pretty, like, sacrilegious toward the comic books, which was refreshing in its way, although that's been done, too. Um, and it was fun to sort of see them, uh, you know, trot out tons of, Ridiculous B list and C list and and like really like F list Marvel characters. Um, They really sort of had a lot of fun raiding the store, Hmm. Um, but I settled in with it and I found actually that over the course of it, I mean one, it's actually like a well written show with like discrete themes and um, you know plot points that appear once and then you know come back in a very satisfying way. And then I actually found the um, the family narrative and you know the portrayal of MODOK as this you know kind of hapless sad sack, you know, guy whose life is falling apart, whose, you know, family doesn't understand him. Um, and who, you know, is both trying to, you know, take back his company from the tech, the tech firm he sold it to and trying to defeat Iron Man and also trying to, uh, manage his son's bar mitzvah, um, which was a nice thing to have. Uh, yeah, I, I think over the course of the 10 episodes, it did, it, it did ultimately work for me.
3: Well, okay, so our our particular Culture Gap fest backstory with MODOK is that I gave a, an incredulous and delighted endorsement of the character of MODOK when I discovered him in a Marvel for Kids comic book my kids were reading uh, a couple years ago and basically, like, read the Wikipedia page out loud with squawks of delight at how improbable and goofy his backstory was. And I think just in general endorsed, like, one of the good things about the universe part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Marvel Universe gen- generally is that there's just so much whackness in it. Uh, a couple of the reviews of the show compared it to Guardians of the Galaxy and noted that, um, that Marvel has done well to plumb the weird corners of invention that have populated its comic book pages over time. Um, and just the notion of a vengeful, fl- flying chair-assisted villain head still delight me. <laughs> it's just such a great concept. Um, however, this show did not work for me. And and I feel like often when we talk about Marvel projects, we come to them and feel like perhaps we're hamstrung in our deep understanding them of them by not being Marvel people. I actually felt like the cultural lacuna that was making it hard for me to grok this show was not being a robot chicken or an adult swim person mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. this this show we actually sat down and watched the first episode with our kids despite it saying it was for mature audiences. And it was, it reminded me of the great Tom Skoka essay about why modern comic book properties are not actually for children anymore. And, you know, it was fine for them to watch half an hour of it, but they were, like, bewildered and, like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I mean, they didn't, they didn't swear, even by the end of it, <laughs> um, on that occasion, at least. But they were like, huh, well, never mind. Um, and then I watched a bunch more, and, hey, just did not work for me because the so it has a kind of a rat-a-tat joke style but the jokes themselves I did not find particularly funny they're mostly um sort of bitter and cutting um but not but they didn't make me laugh so they just seemed kind of acidic without any counterpoint of sweetness or delight um you know there's this claymation animation stop-motion style that is you know pretty fresh and kind of interesting, and does particularly interesting things with gore which tends to look like strawberry jam uh, and is sometimes kind of visually funny i will confess um but like the the character is so grating at first i just found it sort of hard to care about any of his exploits um because he was so crass and cutting mm
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I think in general, I'm pretty much on Julia's team and that I'm I'm not an adult swim sense of humor person. So even though I understood why all the jokes could be funny and could have diagrammed how they were supposed to function as jokes, I rarely laughed at them. But <laughs> the things that I did like about it, the animation, as Julia said, is, is interesting and fresh. And it's not that often that we see stop motion animation, which is just always satisfying. This is, I think, um, considerably digitally aided. You know, it doesn't have the homemade look of like a... Uh, a Nick Park movie or anything like that. It's not exactly gumby, but but it's a little bit more um earthy looking than most of the digital animation that you see. so that that kept me at least visually pleased throughout the few episodes that I watched. Um I think that this show has a problem with its own, tone. I think that it doesn't know how mean it wants to be mm. and how gory it wants to be. There is that warning at the beginning that it's not for kids, but I can also see, as Julia did, why you might sit down with it with your kids, especially maybe slightly older ones. It just reminded me of, of something that my daughter often says about uh, about shows and cartoons she doesn't like. And she even says it about The Simpsons, which to me is just, you know, sort of like Gen X Bible, like you've got to love The Simpsons. How can you not? But she thinks it's too mean. And her response is sort Mm. of like, all the jokes are making fun of people, and I don't like this show because it's just about being mean. She is wrong about The Simpsons, (laughs) but I think she would be right about Modoc if she watched this show. Julia mentioned the the gore that looks like Strawberry Jam, right? Well, there's a lot of it. I mean, I've only Mm -hmm. seen three and a half episodes of this show, but... The body count is pretty high, as far as I can tell, although the show moves so quickly, it's not quite clear sometimes whether someone has been eliminated or just maimed. (laughs) And as John says, I mean, it also takes place in a universe where continuity has been discontinued and anything could happen and anyone could die at any time. But I don't particularly want to see even Strawberry Jam gore happening, you know, every few minutes in a a supposed family sitcom that I'm watching. And so because it's about a supervillain, but he's also kind of lovable and he has a daughter who teaches him to be evil, but their relationship's kind of lovable, but there goes somebody else who's exploding into Strawberry Jam. I'm just not sure how to feel about the moral Mm -hmm. stakes of this universe. And maybe that sounds extremely grandiose for a, you know, low-level MODOK villain who I notice is listed as number 100 on a list of the top 100 comic book (laughs) villains of all time. And there is something funny, I especially, I'm sure, for comic fans of sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel and saying, let's find this random, bizarre character that, you know, nobody wants to use and find a property for him. I think Pat Oswalt's a, a great voice actor and is very enthusiastic about this. And this is not in any way a rote project of let's check off the boxes. Like, it's someone's mm. dream. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, but a combination of feeling like enough with the Marvel properties already yeah. and not understanding that tonal shift between sweet Sweet and nasty kept me from being able to get into this show.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I just concur with all of that, absolutely, Dana. I mean, I'd, I'd add a couple things. One is that is that crossing its DNA with, I don't know what, Adult Swim, Spongebob, Family Guy, has produced something that I, I can't get my head around. And at the heart of it, I would say absolutely, like, the the, the, the visual violence, right, the sort of glib attitude towards ultraviolence. And the, the kind of acidic, caustic put-downness of the humor being forced together with something like a humanish story about a hapless father suffering through, you know, family travails. It's it's weird. And and I know that this is just an absolutely primitive way of looking at something like this in a weird way, but he's effectively as a character, Modoc, placed behind these eight balls these sort of relatable eight balls and in an ordinary show you'd want him to get out from behind the eight balls that's the kind of work of the story arc of the tv shows get him out from behind the eight ball but in this instance if he gets out from behind the eight ball he regains control of his company and wreaks evil and havoc on the world i I just couldn't as a neophyte john i just couldn't find my way uh into this
4: I think, yeah, I mean I would say in since to to, to defend the show's honor, <laughs> you know for me I, I I don't know, I just think that something came through finally in the end that felt like it, it had actually you know created a, a three dimensional Modoc um I don't know it just uh it it ultimately you know sort of uh, felt it felt worth the the five hours it, it took me to watch it.
0: John, I'm just curious because the, the 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 show that I thought of in terms of um, you know it's nothing like it, but in terms of its uh, ambition to to explore hidden corners of the Marvelverse was WandaVision, which we talked about back when it opened a few months ago. And, and I wondered what you thought both about that show and about its mission in comparison to this show's mission. I mean, as I understand it, that show is in universe, right, it, it does adhere to the same um, laws of, of reality as the, the, the Marvel movies that we've been watching for the last whatever it is, 15 years. And it obviously takes itself more seriously than Modoc and is, is not really a comedy, although there's comedy elements to it. Given that we're going to be subject to so many properties in the future that choose to do this, that choose to explore these these dusty corners of the comic book universe, I'm wondering how do you, what do you think of of this in relation to a project like Wandavision?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably helpful to think of Modoc as a bit of an orphan of the the sort of Marvel the the Marvel movie and television project. Um, I mean, basically, this show was greenlit a few years ago for Hulu. As sort of the first of several adult swim style Marvel shows outside the continuity, and that sort of fits with the strategy of Marvel over the last almost ten years, in which um, you know they've had this growing series of movies, and they've at the same time had a bunch of TV shows that were in continuity but didn't but rarely touch the continuity, and were all over the place. So there were some on ABC, there were a bunch on Netflix, there were some on there was one on Freeform, maybe two. And so, Modoc and some other shows that are now probably in limbo that were greenlit around the same time were, were I suppose, the last of these before the advent of Disney And so, with Disney Plus, the sort of I think uh, the the mission of 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 the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now expanded to uh, attract subscribers and keep them hooked. You know, on the other hand, you know, Modoc is really. You know, it's really a, it's a creator based show. It was created by 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 Jordan Bloom and uh, and Patton Oswalt. Uh, it's really their own thing. Um, it, you know, it sort of, you know, production wise, like it it maybe came out around the same time as it, it maybe it sort of was dreamt up around the same time as Wandavision but it was really you know sort of the last part of an older strategy. So I, it is they did they did say recently that it's going to get a second season, but I think it's sort of. Um, it, you can sort of bracket it from the sort of um, you know, full-on content IP assault of the rest of the Marvel uh, stuff right now.
2: We would love to have you back on to talk MCU and other such uh, subjects in the future. Uh, thanks for coming on.
4: Oh, it was a pleasure.
2: Jonathan Fisher is the tech editor for Slate.com. All right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
0: Steve, I hesitated about making this endorsement because it requires a streaming service, and I just feel like we're all so overburdened with more advice about what streaming service to subscribe to, but I think there's going to be a lot of overlap between our listeners and people who have this already. It's the Criterion channel, which I think is probably, you know, as far as value per dollar, the the best streaming service I have. It's certainly the one where I see the most unusual things that I wouldn't be able to see anywhere else. Their curation is incredible. I mean, I don't need to sit here and do an ad for the Criterion channel, but I'm just so happy... exists and it's really great at introducing me to new things. So I just wanted to flag a program that they have that I believe is ending at the end of May. So you only have a few more days to watch these, but it is luckily a pretty short program of pretty short movies um, and that are pretty hard to find anywhere else. So I, I hope people will look for it. It's a program on the films of Lois Weber, who is a silent era director who came along in this weird moment in the late teens where women directors had a lot of power. I mean, because being a film director or working in film at all was something that was so new that it was not yet... Um, particularly respected is because Hollywood itself was only just kind of getting started. There was this strange moment in the teens up through the early 20s where women directors and filmmakers and producers actually had a lot of power to do what they wanted to do. And Lois Weber at one point was one of the most high powered directors in Hollywood. She had her own studio under her own name. You know, she she made all the decisions on her um, on her productions. And they're very unusual for their time. She was really concerned with social issues. She actually has a movie about abortion that references it much more directly than you would think would have been possible in the teens. Uh, She has another movie called Shoes that's in this collection that is about sort of urban poverty and being a working woman at, at this period in time. Um, her movies are just really uh, technically advanced and, and very unusual in their subject matter. One of them stars Anna Pavlova, the great ballerina, who I think only appeared in one movie ever, this, this Lois Weber melodrama. So if you want to see four features they're very short features as movies were in that time and two short films by silent cinema trailblazer lois weber that's the name of this program on the criterion channel there's also a really really good um introduction by a british critic named pamela hutchinson who knows a lot about that period so you can give yourself a little education in lois weber for the next few days on the criterion channel
2: oh that sounds that sounds amazing um julia what do you have
3: um, I would like to endorse a new podcast that we just launched at the Los Angeles Times. We have launched our own daily morning news show called The Times. And it's hosted by Gustavo Ariano, who's just a wonderful journalist who's been working from California for years. And the conceit of the show is essentially that uh, it's worth your taking the time to get a news perspective from the West, because most of the news that you receive is from two cities that imagine themselves to be very different. But when you don't live in them, actually are more similar than they would like to believe. (laughs) And uh, sometimes you get some blinkered news perspectives out of those two cities that are very close to each other on the big map of our country. And also because the issues that affect California are going to come for all the rest of you sooner rather than later, whether it's climate change or uh, inequality or homelessness or immigration or the rise of Asia or the centrality of Central and South America, you know, everything we're Untangling here um, is actually of central importance to the country as a whole. So, anyway, Gustavo is just a wonderful host, uh, and the show is off to a roaring start. It's called The Times, Daily News from the LA Times, and you
2: should subscribe. That's very cool, and I will uh, definitely check that out. All right. Well, starting this podcast coincided somewhat with my moving to upstate New York, and I thereby hatched a devious plan, MODOC like, which was to promote the semi-undiscovered corner of New York that I'd moved to, Columbia County, in order to uh, uh, make good on my investment in real estate here, not not quite. I what really what happened was I fell in love with it up here, began to know it more intimately, and wanted to proselytize and, and share it with others. But my my had I had a devious plan to inflate real estate values. Well, mission accomplished. A variety of factors. I mean, the fact that farms are now as hip destinations as beaches once were. Uh, obviously, COVID. Uh, exodus from New York City. Um, my area is going crazy for better and for worse, right? It's like boosted up, you know, a lot. Um, but what I, I want to say, you know, as we all know, there's good bouge and bad bouge. But I wanna I wanna push on our listeners um, some very good bouge that's arrived here, which is a new restaurant called Feast and Florette. I feel like what Hudson does incredibly well are restaurants that you would almost never find in New York now. You might have found them in the East Village in the early 1990s, but to find them, they're they're here in Hudson, like Little Deb's Oasis, just astonishingly creative and interesting. Restaurant, but also community slash art project. Feast and Florette is is something in a good way that you could find in Manhattan. It's just it's just an it's just a beautifully realized restaurant in an old nineteenth century carriage house slash blacksmith's uh, factory, a brick building um, off of Warren Street in Hudson. And it was just, it's just an amazing meal. They finally, they finally have understood that this is like, this is a food shed really worth exploiting. I mean, there's there's just beautifully prepared steak, chops, like it's it just kind of a comfort food menu done beautifully well. And the, one of the co-owners is a florist. It's just filled with flowers and dried flowers. It's an ambient space that no one had used correctly quite until now. And uh, I've had two, like superlative meals there incredibly good meals in some ways maybe the best the last one i had was the best one i've had in um in hudson so feast and Florette, highly recommended check out hudson hudson is popping uh this summer and uh swing by all right uh julia thank you thank you uh dana thanks that was a pleasure as always
0: lots of fun thank you
2: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And we love it, we really do. When you email us at culturefest at slate.com, we will try to respond in a timely fashion. We have a Twitter feed, it's at Slate Cultfest. Our intro music is by the wonderful composer Nick Gretel. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon.